On this episode of News World, this past March, I was visiting Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama, where I was speaking at the Joint Flag Officers Warfighting Course. While I was there, I asked to talk with an expert in emerging technology, frankly, the metaverse and cyber operations in particular. And the Dean introduced me to my guest today, Dr. Joshua Sipper. I have to tell you, he did such an amazing job of breaking down the concept of the metaverse, a concept I frankly don't fully understand, but he made it both understandable and interesting. So he's here to help us make sense of the cyber world and the metaverse. And I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Dr. Joshua Sipper. He is a professor of cyber warfare studies at the Air Force Cyber College, and he's the author of the new book, The Cyber Meta Reality Beyond the Metaverse. Josh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, sir. It's great to be here with you today. I thought for our audience, we could start by talking a little bit about your background, because you have 21 years of technical and intelligence experience. Could you sort of outline for us how you got to here? Well, I started out, as many people do, in the military. I was in the Air Force for several years, and I was placed in the intelligence career field, specifically electromagnetic spectrum signals intelligence. So I dealt a lot with electromagnetic warfare and intelligence surveillance reconnaissance. I worked on the U-2 program, collecting intelligence for several years. And then for Lockheed Martin, I did the same job for a few years and then switched over to cyber, working for General Dynamics. And then over to the LeMay Center, where you and I met not too long ago. And I worked there in a cyber billet at doing application development and web administration, shareboard administration, a lot of other technical type things. And then most recently, I wound up as a professor over at the Cyber College, teaching there and just having a great time exploring the world of cyber. I have to also point out that in addition to all of your technical knowledge, that you're a writer with several novels and nonfiction works, but in particular, your novels include Runaway Swimmer, The Tower Quail, and Following Durant. Is there any particular pattern to your novels? Well, I started out with historical fiction. The first novel is based off of a family story, actually, that my great aunt told my father when he was growing up of my fifth great-grandfather's brother. His name was George Washington Skipper. Her name evolved from Skipper to Sipper over the generations. But in any case, he was apparently abducted by a Cherokee tribe who lived in the same area as them. And he was half Cherokee. So that kind of thing happened fairly often back in the day. But nobody ever knew what happened to him. So I decided, hey, I'll write a story of what might have happened to him. And everything from there, I've kind of delved into historical fiction and uh, some science fiction as well. So I just enjoy exploring new worlds. I guess that's part of what this current book is about, too, is exploring a new world. My pattern is really just trying to delve into ideas and concepts, philosophies, etc., behind these fascinating spaces that people maybe don't understand and try to help them understand them better. So your new book is entitled The Cyber Meta Reality Beyond the Metaverse. For those of us who don't quite get all this, can you kind of break that down? Yes, sir. Well, so really the whole idea of a meta reality is predicated on this concept that a gentleman named Roy Baskar developed back in 2000. 
and I'm going to give you a mouthful real quick, but then I'm going to break it down for you. But it's based off of this concept called transcendental dialectical critical realism. Just repeat that slowly. That's such a mouthful. You could get a PhD just off that. <laughs> it really is transcendental dialectical critical realism. And that shortened would be meta reality. I knew if we had you on, Josh, that it would take us into worlds none of us understand. And you've already succeeded in one sentence. <laughs> well, the way he breaks it down, he said, it's Roy Baskar sees the world as a reality that can be studied at a variety of space-time layers and levels, and that nature itself is divided into different strata and domains, collectively comprising a meta-reality or a reality of and about reality. So it's basically, if you've heard of the term, the multiverse, some of us really aren't too familiar with what that is either. It's the idea that we live in a particular reality ourselves, but our reality was somehow generated out of this space-time continuum that includes many other possible realities. If I understand it, in physics, there's now a theory that there may be parallel multiple universes that don't quite connect with each other, but that literally exist in the space-time continuum. Yes. And that's completely hypothetical. I mean, really, when it comes down to it, since we could never sense those other universes or experience them physically ourselves, we can only hypothesize that they exist. However, in the cyber reality that we live in, we do experience other people's realities, other types of realities. We can touch those. We can delve into those. We can actually connect to these other concepts and ideas and realities. When I started researching the book and then writing it as well, I started to see, wow, this would be a really interesting way to sort of model what a multiverse would look like by just delving into what we can actually intellectually and informationally see and touch, so to speak, these other realities within cyberspace. And that goes into the dark web and the deep web, into places like China, where their whole reality of cyberspace is completely different from ours, and North Korea, where their whole idea of cyberspace is completely different from ours, and even Europe, you know, all around the world, you're interconnecting cultures and realities in different and exciting fundamental ways. So in a sense, are you also suggesting that the culture you bring to it changes your experience of what it is, so there's not necessarily an objective reality, but there are a series of experienced realities that are culturally dependent. Yes, I think that that is some of it. I also do believe that there has to be unifying threads of objective reality. You know, we're already trying to develop those kinds of threads of objective reality in the way that we set up norms and policy and security across cyberspace, wherever that may be. In a lot of ways, cyberspace and the cybermetic reality is still the Wild West. And that's another part of the reason for this book is to try to establish some science behind all of this, because, you know, we have science that governs and has taxonomies and ontologies and ontogenies for biology, for instance, and for astrophysics and for other sciences. But when it comes to this new reality, this new domain in which we are existing as human beings, we don't really have that common thread, that common unifying reality and so I'm trying to draw out the fact that, yes, we do exist very subjectively within this, but how can we make this more objective? How can we apply science and scientific knowledge and schemes to the cyber matter reality that have not yet been applied to it? So let me ask you just a couple of clarifying things. If I understand it, 
the concept of a meta-reality or a metaverse is basically a way of describing the totality within which everything else exists. What is Zuckerberg trying to do with his name change, which sort of moves in this direction, but what is he trying to achieve? Yeah, I think what he's trying to really do is draw several different threads together into this unifying whole. Now, I do want to say that the metaverse is really a subset of what I'm talking about as the meta-reality. It's just one piece of the larger whole. But the metaverse is really trying to bring together not just the knowledge spaces and the experience spaces like virtual reality and augmented reality. That's a big part of it. But also the commerce piece of it, because if you look at things like Bitcoin, things like non-fungible tokens. And we talked a bit about this at Maxwell a few months ago. Non-fungible tokens basically are things like property and clothing and automobiles, houses in cyberspace. And people are paying Bitcoin, which is based off of real currency, to purchase these non-fungible tokens, these houses and cars and clothes and even food in cyberspace. In fact, not too long ago, McDonald's bought all the rights to become the official restaurant of the metaverse. And I found that so fascinating because let's say, for instance, in order for you to continue to survive in the metaverse, you have to eat. Well, in order to eat, you have to have non-physical food. <laughs> I know this sounds crazy, but the thing is, really, I think what Zuckerberg is really getting at and what McDonald's and all these other corporations are really trying to get at is, hey, we have human beings who are entering and living in this new reality space more and more, how are we going to take that and allow them to live their most realistic life within this non-physical space? And that includes food. It includes clothes. In fact, this one site called Decentraland, they use a currency that they created themselves called Mana, M-A-N-A. -A. They sell NFTs of property. They'll take a city or create a digital twin of a city like New York, and then they'll divide it up into apartments and buildings, etc. I think Snoop Dogg actually bought a large property in virtual New York City in Decentraland, that NFT. So <laughs> you see these people who are investing in virtual real estate already, and it's growing. It's growing. <laughs> Hold on. Let me slow you down on behalf of those of us who don't quite get it. So some guy buys Fifth Avenue in the metaverse. What has he actually acquired? He's acquired a non-reproducible asset. So whenever they produce this property, they make it where you can, I don't know exactly all the fundamentals of how they do this, but they make it where you can't produce any more of it. I don't know if it's a rights thing or legal or what it is, but basically it's non-reproducible. And so whenever someone buys that virtual property, Let's say they want to divide up Fifth Avenue and resell it for a profit in Mana or Bitcoin or Ethereum, whatever it may be. They can do that, and they can actually make money off of that virtual real estate in the future. And then people can live, quote-unquote, within that virtual real estate. For that to happen, you have to find another cuckoo who wants to come in and buy your property in a non-existent space. This is worse than the old Florida land boom when there used to not be any land where the land boom was, because it was all part of a marsh. I know, it's crazy, it's crazy, but it's what's happening. In that context, what are the national security implications? So I think that we're beginning to see a lot of movement within 
the metaverse and within the meta reality as a whole, as far as where we keep our information and assets. And I mean, this has been going on for decades now. You know, a lot of people are storing, they're investing their money, keeping their assets in these online spaces. And of course, the diplomatic information, military and economic pieces of everything that we do from a national security perspective is wrapped up in that. I mean, you think of the OPM hack and what happened you know, years ago with all of the social security numbers coming into the clear to China who hacked that database and bringing that out. Those are things that can be exploited, can be used for future hacks, for future information, for espionage, for blackmail, any number of different things. So the idea that we're continuously sort of expanding this information space means that we have a much larger footprint of information out there that can be attacked, exploited, and used for nefarious purposes against America and our allies. Let me walk you through just a little bit of history and have you sort of either correct me or expand on it. It seems to me that a really powerful case can be made that the early information warfare capability of both breaking the Japanese code and breaking the German Enigma system changed the probable course of World War II. Clearly, the Battle of Midway was decisively shaped by the handful of people in a basement who managed to break enough of the Japanese code. To what extent were those two achievements early examples of the power of what, in a sense, is an invisible battlefield to decisively reshape the physical battlefield? I think they're absolutely fundamental to how we see information and deal with information today. The imitation game that goes into Alan Turing and his work in breaking the Enigma code and essentially developing this machine called Christopher that was using a machine to break another machine. It was fascinating. But he worked with another scientist. These two gentlemen together developed essentially all computer language, computer processing, binary gateways, transistors, all these different things. That was the beginning of what we see as the computer age. Everything from there has built to what we see today. So it was really the fundamental basis of what we are dealing with in the cybermeta reality, the metaverse, and so forth today. I never thought about it, but There must have been a constant cultural struggle between the physical warfare guys who want to know how many extra battleships can you get me and the intellectual warfare guys who want to know how quickly can I target and kill the ship you just got. I mean, in a way, they're really very, very different approaches. And in the early days, it was the intelligence guys who were the distinct minority. Today, I think there's probably a sophisticated understanding that intelligence ultimately destroys physical assets. Well, and during that time too, Newt, there was a confluence of different technologies back during World War II. Not only were computer systems, Christopher and the Enigma, et cetera, but radar had a huge part in helping to win World War II as well. You know, having radar towers set up in England that could detect the incoming bombers and things of that sort, and being able to process that information, you had to have systems that could process that information and identify if it was a large flock of birds versus bombers or whatever it may be that were coming. And also ships, you know, that were coming across the channel and all these other sensory capabilities. You raise a fascinating point, which I don't know that I've ever read a study of the Battle of Britain 
as an information warfare strategy. That in fact, it's clear that the British had a dominance and had invested in the 30s. And ironically, Churchill's one of the people who's on the committee, even when he's in a distinct minority and people think he's nuts in the mid 30s, because he keeps warning about Hitler in apocalyptic terms. Nonetheless, they knew he was so smart that having invented the tank while he was the head of the admiralty, they turned around and said, why don't you serve on this committee? And there was the investment in the combination, as you point out correctly, not just of radar, but of the information processing capabilities, which back then were mostly manual, but which enabled the British to consistently move their resources in a way that the Germans just could never quite match or figure out. Exactly. Yeah. And being able to actually draw all those pieces together, that's so much of what we're dealing with today with information warfare, joint all domain operations, joint all domain command and control, et cetera, that you'll hear as many military buzz acronyms that are coming across today. But they're very important for us to be able to stay preeminent within battle spaces, information battle spaces and physical battle spaces. Can you comment briefly, obviously, only on non-secure basis? about the impact of Elon Musk's capacity to move his Starlink communications over Ukraine and the degree to which that gave Ukraine a kind of information dominance over the battlefield? Yes, that was actually a very interesting item of discussion at the Cyber College and at Air University to see this movement of a civilian network, really, you know, This is not a military company, defense company. It's almost like the old concept of letters of mark back during the Revolutionary War that were given to privateers to go and take cargo from British vessels back during that time frame. Now today, we have this private company owner using those assets to assist in a military operation, but it provided the communications and satellite links that were needed for Ukraine to continue the operations they needed to do. A lot of what you and I talked about when we met earlier in the year was about cyber operations. One of the first questions you asked me was, hey, it seems like there hasn't been a lot of cyber operations right off the bat. Well, in hindsight, there have actually been quite a lot of cyber operations in conjunction with electromagnetic warfare and space with Viasat being taken down. And now with Elon Musk using Starlink, to help with GPS and with targeting and with intelligence and with all these different capabilities that he's brought to bear through that technology. So it's really a game changer, I think. This game changer with the relatively inexpensive various drones that have a long loiter, you know, 25 minutes to an hour capability that are pre-programmed. So you can't break their communications because it's all internal to the vehicle. And They're programmed to say, does this look like a tank? Oh, it does. I think I'll go kill it. So you're getting an exchange rate, I'm guessing, of $50,000 or less for the drone and $3 million or more for the tank. I mean, I certainly did not think you'd have that big a mismatch that we've seen in Ukraine. Truly asymmetric warfare is what we're seeing. And that can go both ways. It's one of those things that I think the U.S. is really concerned about is that asymmetric nature of warfare. Because, yes, you speak truly. If you can invest very little money in a pre-programmed drone that can drive itself and has the autonomous capability, artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities inbuilt to be able to identify and put bombs on target, without having to use 
for instance, a driver on the ground, someone who is using the electromagnetic spectrum to drive that drone and could be jammed, GPS jammed or whatever it may be. That's a big advance, but it also brings issues with it, of course, because Say, for instance, if that drone misidentified the tank as a school or an orphanage or a hospital or whatever it may be, and then you have a Geneva Conventions problem on your hands and lots of other things that can go wrong there. So there are at least two sides of it, definitely. In fact, back in, I think it was 2014, European Parliament established new policy on who do you blame if an unmanned autonomous drone does something like that, accidentally kills civilians or something of that sort. So there are a lot of people thinking about this from a legal standpoint as well, which brings other challenges to the table. Beyond the immediate battlefield, there's this huge potential for asymmetric warfare involving cyber capabilities. I mean, I've thought about, for example, if the Chinese or North Koreans wanted to take down all of our ATMs and the average American couldn't get cash, the speed of our response as a culture would be like hours. And a precursor of that, it strikes me, is the number of people who engage in some kind of ransom approach where they threaten to take over your pipeline unless you give them enough money. How big a threat is that in real time? And how difficult is it going to be for us to overmatch it? Newt, it's so funny that you mentioned that because just this past weekend, so I've been on leave for a couple of weeks because my son graduated from high school. But during this time, I'm a big gardener. So I went to Lowe's and nothing bad. I love Lowe's. Went to Lowe's to buy some plants and some things to expand my system. Well, I get up to the register and they're like, we can't take any cards. Our entire card network is down throughout the entire U.S. and in Canada. We're only taking cash right now. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh, I have, you know, a basket full. I don't have any cash on me because I'm used to using my car all the time. So I like drive down the highway to my bank to go to the ATM. Guess what? The ATM's out. So I go to Walmart across the street. I go to a register. I'm like, hey, are your card things working? Yes, they are. Oh, thank God. So I was able to get cash at Walmart, go back across the street to Lowe's and get my stuff. But that's the thing. Like you said, I mean, it's just amazing. And the first thing that goes across my mind is, is this a cyber attack? Is Russia punishing us by not allowing us to buy our stuff at Lowe's? <laughs> you know, I mean, that kind of thing goes through your mind. But yeah, that and things like the ransomware that you were referring to before, I actually have a case study in the book about ransomware. And it goes into detail about what happened at a hospital system in North Alabama a couple of years ago and the legal ramifications that came out of that. And they eventually paid the ransom. I think they paid about $600,000, which is low by today's standards. I think the latest is $60 million that was actually paid by a company down in Florida just uh, about six months ago or so. And isn't there a big bias against reporting it because the management doesn't want customers to think they're insecure? Yes, absolutely. So that's the thing is it gets suppressed a lot of times because they don't want their reputation to be soiled by these types of attacks. And it's very, very difficult to track down through the dark web and through blockchain, et cetera, the people who actually do these ransomware attacks. There have been some successes after Colonial Pipeline, for instance, the Department of Justice was able to track down the Russian hackers who actually perpetrated that act and take back the Bitcoin from them and shut down their dark web presence as well. So there have been some successes, but there's still a lot of 
problems that are coming across as a result of ransomware. And we've seen it during the Ukraine conflict as well, ransomware that has helped to drive certain things during that conflict. Have you looked at the what I presume was the North Korean takedown of Sony? Yes, yes. That's been a big case study for us in the cyber world. <laughs> I mean, it struck, I mean, first of all, it proves you should not make a movie about a short, fat dictator and not expect him to get really mad at you. I mean, he must have seen part of the movie and gone, that's it. We're getting those guys. We'll teach them. Yeah. And that's the thing, you know, just even image things like that. For instance, in China, pictures of Winnie the Pooh, you can't have those anywhere because, you know, the way President Xi tends to walk in a specific gate that looks like Winnie the Pooh. And so he doesn't want his image tarnished. And so you have dictators like Kim Jong-un who don't want their image tarnished. And if you do that, then they're going to retaliate in ways that seem completely just insane, <laughs> like the Sony hack. But here's a very desperately poor country where the average height has actually shrunk because of malnutrition heavily invested in nuclear weapons and missiles, and yet somehow they've managed to educate people enough to have apparently a very successful and sophisticated cyber capability. What impressed me about the Sony takedown was these guys were really good, and they were formidable. Yes, and it's not just the cyber capabilities, but their ability to gather intelligence, because before you can do any kind of cyber operation, it takes a lot of preparation and quite a lot of information, and you have to get footholds and all those kinds of things. You have to be able to find a way into the system to be able to hack it. You have to find ways in to be able to bring them down. 30 years ago, I think I would have said to you that the National Security Agency was clearly the preeminent system in the world, that we could do both intelligence gathering and cyber operations better than anybody else. I'm not sure today that there's any great margin between us, China, and Russia, and maybe even Israel and North and South Korea. I mean, there's a growing capability around the planet. Does that sort of fit your threat analysis? Yes, we're very aware, and the research that I have done bears out that the gap is narrowing. It definitely is narrowing. And some of that is partly due to the fact that cyber operations, cyber war, has a fairly low bar of entry. I mean, if you can develop a server farm and you have enough people with enough skill, they can do things like distributed denial of service attacks so they can take down entire networks, websites, whatever they may be, or ransomware like we talked about just a moment ago. Newt, you're not going to believe this, but I'm going to tell you, you, sir, could go today if you wished Get on your laptop after we finish talking. You could go out, download the Tor browser, the Onion Router. You could go out on the dark web and you could type into DuckDuckGo ransomware as a service and find a ransomware as a service capability or tool that you yourself, sir, could download. And then you could ransomware a small government, local government or hospital for a piece of $500 or $1,000 software that you bought off the dark web and make yourself hundreds of thousands of dollars. You could do that. That's a low bar of entry, wouldn't you say, that anybody could really do that. And I don't mean to insult your intellect. I'm just saying that, you know, as a non-technical person, 
that you or anyone out there who wanted to do that, they could do that. Now, I'm not saying they should. Now I feel almost challenged to do it, except if I do it, <laughs> I have a hunch I'll end up in jail. <laughs> you would. <laughs> I think any of us would. But but it's one of those things. I'm just trying to highlight the fact that you have these tools that are available to pretty much anyone with an internet connection who can go out there and get them, or you can go and download Kali Linux and go on YouTube and learn all kinds of different hacking skills in a matter of hours that could allow you to do things that you never thought you could do. It's amazing. It really is. How much would you guess rogue countries like North Korea or organizations like Al-Qaeda actually fund themselves through various kinds of ransomware? That's actually a proven fact. We've seen that quite a lot, that you have ransomware and other sources of just stealing money from banks, etc. North Korea has done that quite a lot. They've done that to South Korea on several occasions, stolen money from their banks directly, as well as ransomware. Al-Qaeda in the past has used ransomware and stealing money. Of course, Joint Task Force Ares was a great effort to bring down the cyber caliphate of Al-Qaeda and was very effective. And they've been able to really suppress Al-Qaeda's cyber presence for the last decade almost now. But that's a constant fight. It's a constant battle because you constantly have organizations like Al-Qaeda or North Korea or Iran who are trying to do that kind of thing. In the last chapter of your book, which is called The New World, you have a very interesting sentence I want you to expand on. I'm quoting you now. One of the most interesting aspects of human interaction in and with the cyber meta-reality is the continued shaping of the two by each other. So, in a sense, we're shaping the meta-reality, but the meta-reality is shaping us. But expand on that for a minute. It's almost my way of what Nietzsche said. You stare into the void and the void stares back into you. Well, as human beings, we are doing that, so to speak. We're staring into this new world of cyberspace, of the cyber meta reality, and we're exploring it. But it is changing us. I mean, I don't think that anyone could deny that social media has drastically changed the way that we interface with each other as human beings. And as a result, we've needed to make some changes to social media to help refine that and make it maybe a better space for us as humans to interact within. So to try to get a little away from the echo chamber so much, to be able to have more open conversations with each other and be able to cross the divide that we have socially and politically and intellectually, whatever it may be. I think that as we continue into this new world, that we're going to, it's going to necessitate more and more of that kind of interplay, that seesaw effect of us making the changes to the technology and the technology affecting us as human beings and hopefully finding some sort of happy medium therein. As you look out, given all your knowledge and experience, say 15 years from now, how do you think things will have evolved? Well, I see them going in a direction where it seems like a lot of attention is being given to virtual reality and augmented reality for one thing. Many people are beginning to find more immersive ways to insert themselves into things like the metaverse itself, one part of the cyber meta reality. But also, as we continue to reach out to other people in different places, I'd like to see and I hope to see changes in education, for instance. One big part that I think is a positive 
part of Zuckerberg's metaverse and the metaverse as a whole. And this is from Google and Microsoft and Apple and Amazon. They're all trying to come together to try to provide education through the metaverse to people who are maybe underprivileged, who maybe don't have the same access to resources as some folks do in larger cities, for instance. Maybe they're in rural areas or maybe they're in underprivileged areas, even in other countries. So being able to actually use that to drive some social change, cultural change, idealistic change, et cetera, nationally and internationally, I see those things coming and I think they're good things. That's tremendous. Well, listen, I'm really grateful you to take this kind of time. As I said, when Claire and I were down visiting with you, it was really breathtaking, the work you're doing and how you're approaching it. I wanted to let our listeners have a taste of the kind of thinking that's going on at the cutting edge. I also want them to know that we're going to have a link to your new book, The Cyber Meta Reality Beyond the Metaverse, on our show page at newtsworld.com. And I look forward to the next time I'm down there to getting caught up with you again, because this stuff all keeps evolving, and it takes smart guys like you to keep track to educate guys like me. Thank you so much, Newt. I really appreciate it. And great talking to you. Always enjoy our conversations. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Joshua Slipper. You can get a link to buy his new book, The Cyber Meta Reality Beyond the Metaverse, on our show page at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, Listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.